We're continuing on in our series, the book of Titus, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. So you can turn there, Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Hear God's word. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is God's word. You can be seated. So the Bible is pro-slavery. Such a claim, the Bible is pro-slavery, such a claim comes not only from today's new atheists in their attempt to discredit Christianity, but has also, sadly, come from many within the church throughout its history whether it was in reference to ancient slavery or modern slavery. Some of our theological heroes owned slaves. Our text tonight, which we just read, with its admonition to slaves, forces us to confront this issue head on. For even if it is argued, rightly in my opinion, that the Bible does not justify slavery, We must be honest and admit that neither does it clearly condemn it as an institution. There's nothing to gain by avoiding the truth. The Bible never condemns slavery outright, nor does it ever explicitly call for its abolition. A shocking reality to those of us who take for granted the evils of slavery. So what are we to make of this? Well, many Christians argue that the key to resolving this tension lies in understanding the differences between ancient slavery on the one hand and modern slavery on the other hand. And there is a grain of truth to this, but I do not find it ultimately satisfying, at least not on its own. Now, there are, in fact, many differences between the two types of slavery. The two most significant being the issues of race and freedom. Ancient slavery, what, what Paul is, the world Paul is writing in, ancient slavery was not rooted in racial prejudice. That is, it, it was not uh, focused upon the enslavement of one race by another. I mean, the concept of race didn't even exist at that time, for one. But even if we go with ethnicity or some other kind of word, that's not what it was about in the ancient world. And the second major difference is that ancient slavery made provision in various ways for a slave's manumission or freedom. In some cases, it was even part of the law that there needed to be a time at which slaves could be freed. So those are, those are huge differences, right? We, we do not want to downplay at all those differences. They are big. They are massive. Uh, 
Nevertheless, ancient slavery was just as equally dehumanizing and many slaves in the ancient world suffered terribly, especially from the sexual exploitations of owners. And since we're in the New Testament tonight, I thought it would be appropriate for you to listen to some of these excerpts from various Roman writers at the time of the New Testament. This first one comes from Gaius Cassius. It's recorded for us in Tacitus's history, the Annals. Here's what he says. Nowadays, our household slaves represent many different nations. So again, not race, based on race. Our household slaves represent many different nations with a variety of customs, with strange religions, or no religion at all. You cannot control these dregs of society except through fear. Here's a second quote. This comes from Cato, the elder, in his work on agriculture. He says, Sell off the old oxen, the blemished cattle, and sheep, Old slaves, sick slaves, and whatever else is superfluous. Here's Varro in his work, same title as the one before, on agriculture. Some men divide the instruments by which the soil is cultivated into three categories. One, articulate instruments, that is, slaves. Two, inarticulate instruments, that is, oxen, and three, mute instruments, that is, carts. So slaves are instruments. Here's one more. This is from Seneca the Younger in his work, The Letters. Seneca was at one time an advisor of Emperor Nero. Now, Seneca does not hold what he's about to describe, but he describes the culture of the day when it comes to slavery. He says this, the poor slaves are not allowed to move their lips to speak. At this point, he's talking about slaves at a dinner party as they serve. Then they're done serving, they're off to the side. The poor slaves are not allowed to move their lips to speak. A whip punishes any murmur and not even accidents, a cough, a sneeze, a hiccup are let pass without a beating. I will not dwell on our cruel and inhuman treatment of them. The fact, for example, that we abuse them as if they were pack animals rather than human beings. Another slave is a boy approaching manhood, but he must present a boyish appearance. He is awake all night, dividing his time between his master's drunkenness and sexual desires. I don't want to engage in a lengthy discussion about the treatment of slaves toward whom we are very arrogant, very cruel, and very abusive. So again, the important differences between ancient slavery and modern slavery, notwithstanding, those are very important, but those notwithstanding, such descriptions that I just read could certainly fit the experience of African-American slaves in this country as well. This is the broader cultural context into which the New Testament writers speak without advocating for slavery's abolition. So, if resolution of this issue is not satisfactorily found in highlighting the differences 
between ancient and modern slavery, then what else can we say? And before I offer my answer, I think it's appropriate to humbly acknowledge as prominent and reputable evangelical historian Thomas Kidd encourages us to do in a recent article, he encourages us to acknowledge that the lack of explicit condemnation of slavery in the Bible may never be fully explicable to us in this life. It may not ever be fully explicable. God's ways and His running of the world, His ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55, 8. We may have written history differently. But it is the height of human folly to think we know better than God Almighty as to how history should have been written. It may never be fully explicable to us in this life, and we certainly dare not offer easy or pat answers. So what else can we say? I do think there's something to say. And so my aim in the next few minutes before we actually turn back to Titus, our specific passage, is to offer my answer to this dilemma, which is to persuade you that although the Bible never calls for the abolition of slavery outright, it certainly does not provide justification for it. There's a difference there. In fact, what I'm going to argue, what we see God doing in Scripture is regulating it in such a way that actually ends up sowing the seeds for its eventual undoing. In other words, though the Bible does not explicitly call for slavery, slavery's abolition, it does establish an alternative vision of life. So I've called it an alternative vision of life that's rooted in creation and climactically revealed in the gospel that undermines the very tenets that uphold it. That's my argument, and that's what I hope to persuade you of. So, what is this alternative vision of life? I said first that it's rooted in creation, more specifically in the doctrine of the Imago Dei, the creation of man and woman in the image of God. So, we're going to go to a few different places. I hope you've got your Bibles with you or pulled up on your phone. So, let's go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. There we read this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Imago Dei. Now, there's a lot of debate about what precisely it means to be made in God's image and likeness, but that's for another time. What's clear for our purposes is that because of it, because of being made in the image of God, human life, human beings, all human beings, have infinite worth and dignity and honor. Every 
human life from the womb to the tomb. Red, yellow, black, and white. Now one might object, well, just a minute. Being made in God's image was pre-fall. That was Genesis 1. That was pre-fall. Before sin entered the world and degraded everything. Humankind forfeited the image in Genesis 3 and has lacked it ever since. Someone could object to that. And that might be plausible were it not for some very important texts that reaffirm the image of God in man after the fall. So let's look at those. Let's look at a couple of those. First, staying in Genesis, go to Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 to 6. This is right after the flood. And God is making a covenant with Noah. Let's pick it up in verse 5. Chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and from man. Will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Being made in the image of God here is the reason given. Do you see that? The little word for there in verse 6? It's the reason given for why the taking of a human life requires in turn the life of the one who took it. Human beings are the most valuable part of God's creation. More than animals, more than trees, mountains, rivers, the stars in the sky. Jesus himself said, look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. Are you of not more value, 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 worth than they? Why? Because you were made in the image of God. Nothing else. You, human beings, made in the image of God. Let's look at one more text. For this, we'll go to the New Testament now and see this image of God affirmed in the New Testament, the book of James. James chapter 3. We'll look at verses 8 to 10. This is the context of the taming of the tongue, how the tongue is a source of all kinds of evil. And here in verse 8, pick it up. But no human being can tame the tongue, James says. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing my brothers and sisters. These things ought not to be so. They ought not to be so. We should not curse people because they are made in the likeness of God. Being made in God's image, in other words, impresses upon human beings a dignity that cannot be taken away and that should therefore dictate how we relate to one another. The image of God. Now the implications for slavery as an institution, I think, are obvious. 
insofar as slavery depends on a view of some human beings being less than fully human as property to own, mere instruments to use, this biblical truth of the Imago Dei stands as a very loud testimony against it. In fact, it was the it was part of the basis of our own country's vision of human life. Would that our forefathers were just more consistent in applying it. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Martin Luther King Jr., appealed to this doctrine as one major plank in his pursuit of racial equality in his day. He said this, the whole concept of the Imago Dei gives every human being a uniqueness. It gives them worth. It gives them dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are not gradations in the image of God. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and sisters and to respect the dignity and worth of every person. The biblical vision of life rooted in creation, specifically this Imago Dei, is one piercing arrow that strikes at the very heart of slavery. It's not only this vision of life rooted in creation, but it's also climactically revealed in the gospel. The coming of Christ and his atoning, reconciling work on the cross has significant implications for this issue, many of which the Apostle Paul brings straight to the surface. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 to 29. Paul has been arguing so far in chapter 3 about the primacy of faith over the law. And now he's going to start to unpack what are some of the implications of that. The work of Christ which has brought the primacy of faith over the law. Here's what he says in verse 27. Chapter 3. For as many of you, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Slave and free, one in Christ. That's unbelievable to say in the first century. That's crazy talk. Slave and free, heirs according to promise. Slaves are heirs? <laughs> yes, Paul says. The gospel has leveled all previous measures of human relationships at the foot of the cross. It doesn't destroy distinctions, but it relativizes them in and around the gospel. Reminds me of something that Spurgeon said in a slightly different context. He said, the gospel is a poor man's gospel. You need not be a Plato or a Socrates to understand it. The peasant is as readily saved as the philosopher. Well, here we might say the slave is as readily saved as the slave master. 
both heirs according to promise. Paul says some other stunning things. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 20 and following. Paul says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called, that is, converted. He's got this principle he lays down. Verse 21, were you a bondservant, a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called there, let him remain with God. Hmm. So he says to bondservants here, if you can gain your freedom, go for it. Do it. That's a good thing. He also says very emphatically, do not become slaves of men. Powerful words in a society in many ways that was dependent on slavery. And furthermore, Christian slaves, this is amazing, are now free in the Lord. And free Christians are now slaves of the Lord. Notice again this reversal, the leveling at the foot of the cross. You, every single one of you, Paul says, slave or free here, were bought with a price and are now slaves to God. Slaves of Christ. You were bought with a price. Just imagine the, the, the thoughts running through these folks' minds, the implications of, of this kind of language. I think it's pretty powerful. Well, what about, what else does Paul have to say? What about the masters or the owners of slaves? We'll turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. He says very directly, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Hmm. Masters, stop threatening he says remember you have a master as well and he shows no partiality your social position is irrelevant to God your attitude and conduct toward your slaves are what counts because of the gospel you both did you catch that you both you master and your slaves you both have the same master and in that sense are in the same position as slaves. That's remarkable. Now, this, ne- this next thing is debatable, but I-, I think this is what's going on here. When Paul says in 6.9, do the same to them, did you catch that in 6.9? Masters, do the same to them. What does that refer to? That's a question. I say this is debatable, but I think it refers to verse 7, which says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Or as the parallel text in Colossians 4.1 says, treating them justly and fairly. Now, if that's right, 
then what a blow this text really is to the heart of slavery on top of everything else we've seen. There's building a case here. One more text. One more text. Then we come to our, our text in Titus, which will be a little bit shorter. Paul's letter to Philemon. Paul's letter to Philemon. So go ahead and turn there. It's a very short letter dealing with one central issue. This uh, situation of the runaway slave Onesimus and how Paul is going to handle it with Philemon, Onesimus's owner. It's a striking little letter. I say it's little, but as my wife likes to say, and for those of you who have heard her sing, you know what I'm talking about. I'm little, but I'm loud. Uh, and I mean that in a good way because she's a fantastic singer. Though Philemon, analogously, is a little letter, it speaks loudly on this issue for those who have ears to hear. Look at verses 15 to 21. Paul says, for this perhaps, it's a big perhaps, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, Philemon, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Did you catch those words at the, at the beginning there in verse 16? Philemon, Paul says to him, I'm sending your slave Onesimus back to you, but I want you to receive him no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Many interpreters, I think rightly, understand Paul in this letter to be asking, however subtly, for Onesimus' emancipation now that they are beloved brothers in the Lord. I think the subtlety comes through in a lot of different ways, but uh, one way it does is in this kind of pressure that he puts on Philemon. Listen to how uh, Doug Moo puts this in his commentary. He says, by suggesting that This might indeed be God's purpose. Paul is, of course, putting considerable pressure on Philemon. To refuse to act toward Onesimus, Paul suggests, would be perhaps to fly in the face of God's own purposes. In other words, Onesimus ran away, met Paul in prison, was gloriously converted, and Paul says, perhaps this is why He ran away. 
And so don't go against this divine perhaps. That's not a good place to be. I think that's right. So these four texts and others present the biblical vision of life that's revealed in the gospel, which delivers the second piercing arrow to the heart of slavery. The first one was the Imago Dei, and the second one was the gospel, the implications of the gospel. I think you take those together, and the implication is this, that without explicitly prohibiting slavery, the Bible nevertheless implies that its existence in any form, economic, racial, sexual, mild, or brutal, any form is ultimately out of step with God's will and should be abolished. As John Piper has said, to walk in step with the truth of the gospel is to walk away from slavery. I think that's right. And so I just, I just commend that approach to the larger issue to you. You can go back and look at those texts in more detail. You can study that further, but I think that's what has persuaded me. And when I, when I look at the whole scope of Scripture, I see it moving forward away from slavery and the Bible, therefore, giving no justification for it. And so with that kind of elephant in the room, as it were, addressed from a, a wider biblical lens, we can come to our text now without you all having a thousand questions. Or maybe you still have ten questions or so. Maybe hopefully less. So let's go back to our text in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So this, this particular instruction here comes as the last in a series of instructions to different groups that we've seen so far in chapter 2. Whether it was the older men or the older women, or the younger men, or the younger women, including even Titus and ministry, those who minister, we've seen now three purpose clauses that hold this whole unit together, show that Paul has, in a sense, an outward focus throughout. Listen to these purpose clauses. Verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8, that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And then verse 10, that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So all the exhortations in this section, in other words, are aimed at demonstrating through the behavior of Christians the credibility of the gospel to the outside world. And each in their own way shows concretely then what accords with sound doctrine. That was chapter 2, verse 1, the heading for this whole section. Or we could say what adorns the doctrine, chapter 2, verse 10 in our text. So here now in verses 9 and 10, we have this issue of slaves. Paul's instruction to slaves. What does he actually say? Well, I think Paul's main point is fairly straightforward and can be summarized like this. Slaves, submit to your own masters in order to properly adorn and thus make credible 
the doctrine of God our Savior. And that's the main point of the text. I think that's the exhortation to slaves. The structure of the text is also fairly clear and it consists of three sections. You can see these readily. You have the exhortation in verse 9a to submit. Then, in the next section, you have a pair of contrasting statements. This is verses 9b to 10b that describe the manner in which they are to submit. And then finally, the third section in verse 10c, you have the purpose of such submission. So look at verse 9a again. Here's the exhortation. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Now who are these bondservants? The word itself, bondservant, designates a specific kind of enslavement in the ancient world. One species of the genus slavery, you could say. It describes, and this is how the the preface of the ESV puts it, it describes, quote, someone bound to serve his master for a specific, usually lengthy, period of time, but also as someone who might nevertheless own property, achieve social advancement, and even be released or purchase his freedom. That's a very specific kind of situation in slavery in the ancient world. Such a person was often part of the household, which explains why it's included here in this list of other people and groups that would be in the household as well. Now, the, the Greek word here is the word doulos. Some of you know that. Doulos, and it is a word that referred to all kinds of different situations. From the most positive sense of servant, serving the Lord, to the fullest sense of slave and everything in between. It was a word that was used to refer to all kinds of different situations. And so how do we know precisely what it means in any given usage? Well, you have to look at the context. So here the ESV chooses to go with bondservants. I think the the more general word slave is better here simply because I don't see anything in the context that would warrant limiting the exhortation to slaves here to one particular kind of slave and no others. It could be. I don't see it. So I think reading here slaves is perfectly appropriate. The ESV itself even gives you a footnote that says, or slaves. So I'm just going to go with slaves. Slaves of whatever kind, Paul says, submit to your own masters and everything. But what is the nature of this submission? Paul actually spells this out a little bit more here than he does elsewhere. He says, first, in this first pair of contrasting statements, in verse 9, B and C, you have the positive statement, to be well-pleasing, which means to be eager to please your master, focusing kind of on the internal disposition. And then you have negatively, on the other side, not argumentative or not having a defiant disposition that might be manifested in talking back or arguing. In other words, don't be like a three-year-old. At least the three-year-olds that I know in my house. (laughs) They have a defiant streak in them. Can you go help and do this? No. 
Can you go do that? No. No, no, no. Paul wants them not to be talking back, argumentative, having this defiant disposition. Rather, to have a disposition that is eager to please their masters. The second pair of contrasting statements focuses more on their external behavior, and the negative one comes first this time. Negatively, he says, not pilfering, or that's an old word for basically stealing, taking what is not rightfully yours. Oftentimes, slaves were entrusted with uh, an owner's property or a task, and Paul is saying, don't be one who unlawfully takes what doesn't belong to you. Instead, show yourself completely trustworthy or, as he says here, showing all good faith. Showing all good faith. Show complete trustworthiness in what is good. This is interesting why this adjective good shows up here. Slaves are to submit to their own masters in everything. That is, to show complete trustworthiness to do what is asked of them insofar as what they are being asked to do, this is my understanding of why the word good is here, insofar as what they're being asked to do is not sin. And Therefore, disobedience to the Lord, who is their master. I think that's why Paul includes the word good here. Suffering harsh treatment at the hands of a master, a human master, for rejecting to do something asked of them that would be sinful is more honorable, more worthy of Christ than submitting and thereby sinning. 1 Peter has a lot to say about that dynamic. And Paul puts it in here. So there's the exhortation and there's the manner in which they are to carry out this call to submit. And then why? Why is it, why is it here? What is the purpose? And Paul gives it to us very straightforwardly in verse 10. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, the word for adorn here is the, is the same word we get our English word cosmetics from. It, it meant to, to beautify something by external means, often by attire in that day. And so Paul, what he does here is he leverages this idea and then he uses it figuratively to refer to the good works of slaves for their masters, their good humble posture and their actual obedience. Such attitudes and actions are described here as adorning or beautifying the doctrine of God our Savior, which in other words is the gospel. Now You might scratch your head there. Why these attitudes and actions? How, is, how does that work? How is it that these attitudes and actions adorn the gospel? What's, what's the connection there? I think it's because it models the very attitude and action of the Son of God who listened to Philippians 2, who, being in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos, a slave, a servant, himself taking the form of a doulos. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What he describes of Jesus in Philippians 2, I just read, and what he enjoins upon slaves here in Titus 2, he also commends to the rest of us in Philippians 2. When he says, have this mind among yourselves, that which was also in Christ Jesus. Have that mind. I think that's the connection. These kinds of attitudes and actions that Paul exhorts the slaves to, they adorn the doctrine of God our Savior because the centerpiece of the gospel, Jesus himself embodied these actions and attitudes, himself taking the form of a doulos and becoming obedient to the point of death. So just to finish, this This gave me headaches this week, trying to think about how to apply this text to us today. It can be a a real challenge for some obvious reasons. The institution of slavery no longer legally exists, and we say that's a good thing. I argued that. And I hesitate to apply a text like this to our work situation, that is, employee, employer, because quite honestly, the two situations are too different. They're just too different. Being a slave in the ancient world is not the same thing as being an employee today. So I I, I hesitate to even apply it there. However, there is one area that this can be applied for us. If we shift, with a little bit of imagination here, if we shift from the social sphere to the theological sphere, from being slaves of men to being slaves of God. We've already hinted at this a little bit. Paul himself encourages this move. In this very letter, he calls himself a doulos, a slave of God. Paul, a slave or servant, bondservant of God. And we saw earlier from 1 Corinthians 7 that no matter where we are socially, slave or free, as Christians, we are slaves of God. We have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. And so, I'm going to read through the text one more time. And this time, I want you to insert yourself into the slave category, understanding then the Lord Jesus to be your master, and then for us to receive personally Paul's exhortation here. So, here it is one more time. Bondservants, or slaves, slaves of Christ, us, are to be submissive to their own master, the Lord Jesus, in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not holding on to what doesn't rightfully belong to us, but showing all good faith and trustworthiness so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Where do we get the resources, though, to be this kind of person, to become this kind of person. 
from the very doctrine that this kind of life adorns, the gospel. And so friends, look to Christ who loved you by emptying himself and taking the form of a slave in order to die for you so that in turning to him and trusting him, you would experience freedom from the guilt and penalty of sin. You'd be counted righteous in his sight. You'd be promised everlasting life, be given his spirit to encourage and empower you even now. Jesus became a doulos, a slave, a servant, in order to free us from slavery to sin and death. We were bought with a price. And so may we increasingly, in greater measure, adorn this gospel in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we need your help for this to be this kind of person. And so we ask for it. You have given us of your spirit. You have bought us. We belong to you. We are freed from the penalty of sin. And Lord, in this life, you are freeing us from its power. And we just ask that more and more we would become people who in beautiful and stunning ways adorn the gospel with our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.